your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. You're all originals. You've all made America better, a better place, and you've made it seem a better place in the eyes of the people of the world. I'm Ian Wilder. I'm Fiona Hatch. I'm Sarah Nels. I'm Tyler Katzenberger. And I'm Allison Keeley. You're listening to 1050 Bascom, a podcast brought to you by the UW-Madison Political Science Department. Today on the pod, we had the pleasure of speaking with Luke Fizard, who is a former state rep for Middleton and currently works as a lecturer at UW-Madison. Fizard's work centers around state and local government, and in this episode, he touches on important themes such as federalism, redistricting, elections, and policy. Join us in what feels like a lecture from Mr. Fazard. Can you start us off by telling us a little bit about yourself? You bet. Well, first and foremost, thank you very much for having me. Uh, Since this is a Wisconsin-centered podcast, I always like to start things off by saying that I am a seventh-generation Wisconsinite. My ancestors actually came to Kenosha before we were officially a state, and we have slowly migrated westward to now where uh, I live in Middleton, which is just west of, of Madison. And my official biography that I actually put on my LinkedIn profile is that I am a Green Bay Packers season ticket holder. And not only am I a season ticket holder, but I'm also a shareholder. So for those who are unfamiliar, the Green Bay Packers being the only publicly owned sports franchise in America, periodically will issue shares of stock in order to raise money for things like stadium improvements. So this most recent go-around, I bought both my kids' shares of stock. Uh, They're 12 and 9, respectively. And I had them framed. I deliver them as if they are, you know, stone tablets from Mount Sinai. And let's just say they were like, what is this? Uh, But I told them, you know what, as a Wisconsinite, 20 years from now, you're going to thank me. So that's me. Wonderful. Yeah, that's only going to appreciate. Um, you might be the first seventh gen Wisconsinite we've had on the pod. So. I, it's, it's an honor. <laughs> Congrats. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. And then on the professional side, do you want to tell us a little bit um, about what you do and also maybe about the class that you teach and some of its learning outcomes? Absolutely. So I am a full-time software salesperson. I work in the cybersecurity space. And so I get often asked, how did I end up becoming a lecturer at UW-Madison? And it really stems back from 2019 when I first ran and was elected to the city council of my hometown, Middleton. And as part of that, I did the standard campaign where I knocked on doors, talked to constituents, asked them questions about what was important. And I kept learning or or the same experience happened over and over where there was a disconnect between what people thought local government does versus what it actually does. And the story that I often reference is a a very nice woman invites me into her home to have a conversation. It was one of those sub-zero temperature days. You know, I barely feel my extremities. So we're sitting inside and she starts talking to me about how it's my job as a member of the city council to stand up to Donald Trump and make sure he doesn't build his southern the border wall. And again, very lovely woman, super nice, but in the whole time in the back of my head, I'm like, okay, so what is a city council person from Middleton, Wisconsin, going to do to affect policy at the southern border? But there were just so many instances like that that I realized, hey, people could really 
benefit from an education on what local government does and does not do. And what better place than the political science department at UW-Madison? So I reached out to the chair, the then chair of the poli-sci department, a gentleman by the name of John Zambrunnen, who also lives in Middleton. And I said, hey, I would be very interested in teaching a course on local government. I'll put together the syllabus. It will be unlike anything the department has seen, and it will cover all of these aspects of what makes our counties and our municipalities tick. And he very politely told me no. And you know, at the time, the university was going through a budget cut, and so they were not bringing on new faculty. He was very nice about it. But pretty much every year, I pinged him again, just about you know, on the dot, and said, hey, what are we thinking about that local government course? And each time he was like, ah, I just don't think the timing is right. Well, fast forward to January of 2023, and the now chair of the poli-sci department, uh, Professor John Peefhouse, sends me an email and says, hey, we need somebody to teach the intro to state government course. Do you have any interest? And of course, I jumped at the opportunity. And I think the lesson here was the perseverance of asking in 2019, uh, and then again in 2020, and then again in 2021, and then again in 2022, even though I got a lot of no's, by the time a spot did open up, my name was at the top of the list, or near the top of the list, I should say, as a result. And so that was one of the lessons I really tried to impart into my students, is that sometimes you gotta hear a lot of no's before you get to a yes. Well, we're certainly glad you got that yes. Thank you. Now Thank you can you. join us here today. Congrats. Um, getting into that class material, so you had your students compare uh, different state legislatures. Um, we're wondering, how does Wisconsin stack up to other states? Yeah, so the class was about 30 students, and I had each of which do a presentation on one of the other 49 states and its governmental makeup. And it was absolutely fascinating. Uh, for example... I learned that Minnesota has not one, but two copies of its state constitution. Exactly the same language in both, but one is signed only by Democrats and the other is signed only by Republicans. They, the, the, the two sides hated each other so much that they refused to sign the same document, even though, again, the same language. I also learned that states vary a great deal in terms of how they pay or don't their legislators. Mm -hmm. New Mexico does not pay their state legislators at all. Compare that to New York, where the state representatives make $140,000 a year. And so the real difference there actually is around maybe a part-time versus full-time legislature, right? Mm -hmm. New Mexico, they only meet for three months every two years, whereas in New York, it's considered a full-time job. So then you asked about Wisconsin. Wisconsin's an interesting hybrid in that technically the state assembly and state senators are full-time. Mm -hmm but they each make about $57,000 a year, which, hey, that's a good chunk of money, but it's the second lowest pay in terms of full-time state legislators behind only Alaska. Hmm. And so, and I think that is a reflection of our the political culture that exists. So we talked a lot about this over the course of the semester in that there's really three dominant political cultures that exist within the United States. 
there's the moralistic culture, there's individualistic and traditionalistic, and all 50 states fall into one of those three categories. Moralistic states, think of those as politics is a noble calling, right? And it should be politicians exist to do the greater good and for sacrifice. That is Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. Individualistic states, it's much more about personal uh, amassing of power. It's very transactional. I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine. Illinois, perfect example of this. And then the traditionalistic is one that really exists to maintain the status quo as much as possible, right? People in power stay in power uh, and you know that there's not a lot of shake up to the system. Best examples of those are the deep south, right? So Alabama, Florida, etc. And so it was really fascinating over the course of the semester to see how those political cultures influenced things like how much legislators get paid, how many time, how much a year do they meet, um, how are laws passed, etc. Um, and that really, I hope, informed the students to think about it in terms of framing their own references for state government moving forward. Mm -hmm. And what makes Wisconsin moralistic? Wisconsin's moralistic. Uh, kind of background largely stems from our immigration patterns. So we have a heavy Germanic and also Norwegian, uh, a lot of Irish. Um, and so when these settlers came over from Europe, my family included, they came with it kind of a, with a democratic socialism background largely. And so when they would set up the state, both when it was a territory and eventually when it became a United State, they did so largely based on what they knew from their home country. And so even after all these years later, it's amazing how the framework that they put in place um, has continued to perpetuate with our political culture as a whole. Now, there are certain elements of the state that one could argue maybe are more individualistic or traditionalistic, but as a whole, I would say that people take politics very seriously in this state. Mm -hmm. And you see that reflected by Wisconsin having one of, if not the highest voter turnout in pretty much every presidential election. It is truly seen as a, a, a noble calling and a greater good uh, versus some other states which view it, again, more transactionally. I'm wondering, with like that moralistic culture that we have does that ever bleed into policy like is there a notable mm. notable difference in policies between states or the way that policy is made in those states does that have an effect or is it something else no it's a great question and one of the things we looked at was how each state when the students did their presentation taxed its citizens and then spent and what did they mm. spend it on mm -hmm. Traditionally, you would see more moralistic states invest in things like public education, um, a university system, etc. Versus individualistic states or traditionalistic, it's much more on you know crime or, or prisons or along those lines, and and that's that's a broad generalization. But you absolutely would see um, that you know, some states rely on an income tax, like Wisconsin, a progressive income tax. Um, and then other states have no income tax and have a super high sales tax, which is very regressive and arguably hits the, the poorest uh, citizens the hardest. And the, the citizenry is, seems to be largely okay with that. Uh, and so it, the, 
things like spending per pupil on education, uh, the, the amount of people that we incarcerate, uh, those kinds of things tend to fluctuate, fluctuate greatly where you've got states like Massachusetts that, you know, for, I think it's one out of every thousand, um, they incorporate or incarcerate 88 people versus Alaska where it's like 400. And, it, and it's just, it's, so it's the, the disparities in how each state goes about executing its various functions varies a great deal. One of the, so the final exam in my course, I gave students an option of one of two essay questions. The first of which was, is federalism still the best way to govern the United States? Meaning, is it a good idea that we allow such flexibility in states to be able to do to execute differently on things like public education? Or should we be more uniform? And then the second question, which the majority of the students actually answered, was Wisconsin has traditionally been a uh, pioneer in innovation, right? This, we were the first state to do uh, workers' compensation. We were the first state to have a progressive income tax. We were the first state to allow public sector employees to unionize, et cetera. Do they think that Wisconsin is still an innovator or have we you know, kind of fallen behind a little bit? And I think almost uniformly, the students felt that Wisconsin does some things really well mm -hmm. and some things we seriously lag behind. Uh, there was large consensus that the preservation of our natural resources was something that Wisconsin seems to do very well. And on the flip side, uh, most students took issue with our state marijuana policy or lack thereof. Uh, we are surrounded, other than Iowa, by states that have legalized marijuana, and most students felt that Wisconsin should, should similarly follow suit. So it's really kind of it depends on the policy area whether or not the students really thought that Wisconsin is still an innovator in terms of uh, you know governmental action. Yeah, touching on that same subject, um, we've. Definitely, I would say saying that there's been investment in higher education in Wisconsin over the last 10, 15 years, definitely not something you can say. Right. Um, we've seen cuts to higher education. Um, we've seen a lot of big fights over um, environmental policies. I know the governor just pushed through um, the Pelican River Forest Project, but that was being blocked by Republicans in the legislature. Yep. Um, and we've seen a few more um, political deals kind of being negotiated in a time of polarization and partisanship. It, has that polarization and partisanship affected Wisconsin's identity as a state and more importantly as a state legislature, I guess, to, or I shouldn't say more importantly, but um, more specifically as a state legislature. Yeah. yeah. I relied on a number of guest speakers throughout the course uh, mm -hmm. of the semester because the, the thesis that I had was, yeah, it's important to read about state government policy and how it's executed in a textbook. And it's equally important to hear from the people who actually practice it about what happens in the quote unquote real world. And I had a number of folks who were former legislators or former cabinet secretaries, each of whom lamented that the partisanship and the polarization has gotten so much worse from when they were in, in office. And, and some of them hadn't been out of office all that long. Um, and they, they talked about a time when it used to be very common for legislators to fight on the floor of the assembly and then they'd go have a beer together at, you know, afterwards and slap each other on the back. The story that I often point to 
one of our guests uh, over the course of the semester was uh, former ambassador Tom Loftus, who was speaker of the House or speaker of the Assembly here in Wisconsin. He ran against uh, then Governor Tommy Thompson in 1990, and yet they, even though they were political opponents, they remain very close friends to this day, where they continue to drive and, and tour the state together. That for a Democrat and a Republican who ran against each other statewide to be close friends and travel the state together, that's almost unfathomable today. And I think there's a couple of reforms that are possible that could potentially get us back to that. I know the hot topic these days is redistricting reform, meaning how our legislative maps are drawn, who draws them, and in what capacity. Uh, and then the other reform is ranked choice voting. So we talked a lot about some states like Maine and Alaska that do ranked choice voting, meaning I can go and cast my ballot, not just for one person, but for multiple people in descending order. And if my first choice doesn't meet a certain threshold, my vote doesn't get automatically cast out, but instead gets reallocated to either my second or third choice. And I think that early results have shown that that is a very moderating force in places like Alaska and Maine, which hopefully, when adopted, can bring some level of civil dialogue back to, frankly, a, a way too partisan environment and way too um, disagreeable environment these days. Oh, do you want to? Sorry. Yeah, I can. <laughs> um, so, talking about redistricting, Wisconsin yep. is officially getting new maps. Yes. Um, or at least so it seems at the current moment. Yes. Um, do we think that this process is going to result in a map that might cut at that um, partisanship and polarization? Yeah, I, I think so. We, you know, this is a hot topic in the sense that yet just yesterday, the Republicans passed a map that had was more or less a blueprint that the governor himself had introduced that I think would have taken the number of Republicans down from 64 to like 53 in the assembly, and then the number of uh, Republicans in the Senate from 22 to 17. So they, they still would have maintained majority. But just a quick note, yes. that's just an estimate though, right? It would yes. depend on like what actually happens in the That's election. exactly right. Okay. That's exactly right, yes. That's based on previous voting trends and assuming, so okay. a lot could change. And then there, so there was a total of seven maps that were first introduced. Three of them have already been thrown out as being either too partisan or that they don't fix the quote unquote contiguous district problem, which means there's these districts that are little islands that are not connected geographically at all, which is technically against the state constitution. So there's really four maps left. And some of them are more favorable to the Democrats based on previous uh, election results. Some of them are more favorable to the Republicans. It will be really interesting to see what happens with the state Supreme Court and then ultimately whether or not that gets uh, you know, appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court. But the argument goes that if you have more competitive districts, that the candidates themselves have to be more moderate because they have to appeal to a wider swath of the electorate than just their primary or you know their primary partisan base. 
And so if you have more moderates in office, the theory goes that that would then create a more civil and, uh, you know, agreeable legislature, which I think absolutely is the case. It's just a matter of how close uh, it's going to be and, and how not. And so all eyes are on the Supreme Court. And I think every observer of Wisconsin politics is waiting with bated breath to see how they rule. Mm-hmm. And staying on Wisconsin politics... Um, so looking ahead even further into 2026 or some of those future elections that are going to be coming up, uh, we have a governor, Tony Ebers, who is getting up there in age and there's some speculation that maybe he won't run for office again. Do we have anyone who we think might try to run to secede him or is there anyone in the party or in the, um, in Wisconsin politics right now that you're excited about or you see potentially becoming a future party leader? Yeah. So... The, at the most recent Democratic Party of Wisconsin convention, I think it was of the summer, the governor referred to himself as, quote unquote, two term Tony, mm-hmm. and then said maybe it will be three term Tony. So, you know, th- there's the possibility that he absolutely runs again. He'd be 75, I think, by the time that 2026 rolls around. And, and I am not one of those that holds the age against him. I actually think. The fact is that he comes across as kind of grandfatherly is one of his strongest attributes, to be perfectly honest. Uh, But let's just say for the sake of argument that he decides to hang it up after eight years. The Democratic bench, in my opinion, is incredibly deep. You've got Attorney General Josh Call, Secretary of State Sarah Godlewski, current Lieutenant Governor Sarah Rodriguez, former Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes. You've got your state party chair, Ben Wickler. Uh, State Senator Kelda Royce, I mean, each of whom is relatively young with a long political future ahead of them. Um, But I do think that the outcome of this year's presidential election will largely shape not only whether Governor Evers chooses to run again, but if not, what the Democratic nominee will uh, will be, Mm -hmm. because if it's Trump, you know, wins again, I think there's going to be a desire to once again have someone who is a little bit more of a moderating and stable force, which is one of the things that I think Governor Evers used to first get elected in 2018. Whereas if uh, President Biden gets reelected, I think there's going to be a really strong push for a younger generation of progressives to take over the reins of power, which is, I think, sets up, you know, the Godlewskis, the Barneses, etc. And even some outstate uh, folks, you know, Wausau Mayor Katie Rosenberg, uh, Green Bay Mayor Eric Genrick, uh, out of gaming executive uh, Thomas Nelson, uh, Katrina Shanklin, Assembly Representative up in Stevens Point, all of them could be credible statewide candidates uh, outside of the traditional what we'll call I 94 corridor of, of Madison and Milwaukee. So I like to pick um, yeah. uh, this kind of question. <laughs> Who out of the folks that you name do you think? has the chops actually put together a campaign in a race that could win. I think Attorney General Josh Call has shown twice that he can put together a statewide campaign that's effective. Um, I I think the the work that Secretary of State Godlewski did to save the state treasurer's office and then become state treasurer uh, on a statewide basis was incredibly impressive. 
I think, you know, former Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes, I think he learned a lot from his race against Ron Johnson in 2022 that would inform if he chose to run again in 2026. Um, so I, I think there's a lot of folks that have the, uh, the, the, the chops, if you will. What's interesting is um, if you contrast that with the Republican side, the when people ask who's the kind of natural successor in 2026 to run for governor, I have a harder time coming up with an individual name there. Yeah, because I mean, look, um, let's go back. They ran um, Dan Kelly for the Supreme Court Correct. twice. Yep. He lost twice yep. by pretty decently wide margins. They ran Tim Michaels for governor in 2022. Um, I think it's fair to say that it was not the strongest campaign season for the Republicans. Yep. Um, and obviously 2018 was Scott Walker, but since then, Ron Johnson has been, and John Liber, um, Ron Johnson yes. and John Liber yes. have won statewide elections. I mean, um, I think I'm forgetting one more, um, potentially. Hagedorn, Brian Hagedorn was okay. mm-hmm. technically not a Republican, but he did win in 2019. A yep. conservative, yep. yeah. Yes. So, you know, that's a good question. Like, who do they turn to? And they, they're the, let's say too, they're the majority party yes. in the state by a pretty wide margin. Yes. So they already have more people yes. in the state legislature. Who do they turn to in 2026? It's such a great question because I think the, the name that I hear the most in terms of a dream candidate is Representative Mike Gallagher, who represents mm-hmm. the, the Green Bay area. But I think he's he really actually enjoys the spot that he has in the house. And I don't really see him giving that up, nor do I see Representative Brian Stile, who's in kind of the Racine, Janesville area. Mm-hmm. So then that takes you to the the other you know, legislators. Uh, and you're absolutely right. There's more of them. But maybe because of that, it's been harder for one or more to establish a statewide identity because they kind of get lost in the shuffle. Folks that are old enough to remember, who are old like me, um, back in 2010, you mentioned Scott Walker. He was then Milwaukee County Executive. He, every year, would do a statewide tour on his Harley to, quote-unquote, promote Milwaukee County. Now, everyone knew that that was really him building up his statewide ID, right? Meanwhile... Former Governor Jim Doyle was Attorney General, um, and he has shared that he spent about five years building up his statewide name ID before he ever ran for governor. I don't see anybody putting in that sort of legwork on the Republican side. Mm-hmm. Well, and I mean, even who you could, maybe you could say is the most high-profile Republican in the state legislature, Robin Voss, yes. I feel like generally has been pretty open about the fact that governor is not really on his plate is something he wants mm-hmm. to do. Correct. Yeah. Yes. And from there you have Lemahue, and after that, I mean, I don't even know where to start after that. But, right. Um, yeah. But yeah, okay, now that I've taken us off on a <laughs> wild fun tangent. No, I love this tangent. We get into it so often. But it's, <laughs> it's so fun to think about. I also think, um, like like you brought up Gallagher and Sally, like, Gallagher, I think he, I think you're right. He likes where he is. Yeah. I could see him in future house leadership. I, yeah, I actually think totally. he would do really well there. Yep. Um, or I could see him making a Senate bid in like a 2028. Would you but... do it against Tammy though? No, but Tammy's not in 2028. Yeah, no. If if Ron Johnson retires because he said he was going to run two terms and then he did a third, right. <laughs> so I mean I mean yeah, so he could run a fourth, but I could see him running in 2028. Often, do we think Tammy factored in his decision not to run for Senate? What do you mean? Who, like the fact that he'd have to run against Tammy of all people. 
Do you think, wait, Tammy factored that in? Or that he like, when Gallagher was deciding to run, do you think he oh, looked at Tammy? He probably like, sure, that I think that was a factor. Yeah. yeah. He's yeah. also got young kids, and he's he's chair of the China Committee, which is his, uh, you know, yeah. dream job that he mentioned. Mm-hmm. The guy, he has a PhD. I mean, he has been on record saying that he wants to be a university professor at some point. And so oh, I, I, I don't see... The, him going for U.S. Senate because I don't see how that gets him closer to that ultimate goal. Fair. But, yeah. you know, stranger things have happened. Okay. Um, before <laughs> we get to our fun question, yeah. we want to ask you as an... Now, are you a city... Are you an older, older person, right? Is that... So I'm a former older person. Oh. Okay. Can you tell us a little bit about your time as an older person? We've talked about the day-to-day yep. of state lawmakers. Um, we've gotten into fun little side tangents about them. But um, what did you do as an older person? What yeah. did your day-to-day look like? Yeah. So I ran in 2019 uh, and was elected and then was re-elected in 2021 and then chose not to run for re-election in April of 2023. So a lot of the work that I did as an older person in Middleton was helping set the strategic direction for the city of roughly about 20,000 people, whether that was investing in you know public parks or uh, converting the city's uh, vehicle uh, vehicles to electronic vehicles or to, to EVs away from gas powered, um, etc. It was a lot of work around you know which roads get paved in terms of we only have a finite pool of money to pave a certain amount of roads which ones do we think are most important uh i think that i my my service and my time on the as an older person is probably a cautionary tale for some folks because when i first got elected i came in thinking i'm going to shake things up i'm going to you know fight the system i'm going to do all these things uh, th- these people don't in power don't know what they're talking about and I quickly realized, nope, they did know what they were talking about. And I wish I had gone back and uh, adhered to the adage that my grandmother taught me, which is, you have two ears and one mouth, use them proportionally. <laughs> and over, you know, it took me about six months before I realized, oh, I actually should be really more listening rather than talking, because that's going to benefit me and my constituents as a result. I will say, there was a noticeable shift in priorities and tone when COVID happens. And as the pandemic dragged on, I noticed that the decorum uh, between fellow council members and also constituents degraded significantly. Mm-hmm. And frankly, I got really burned out um, as a result. And it cost me, it cost me personally, it cost me professionally. Um, and ultimately to the point where, you know, when I, I chose not to run again in April of 2023, because I really needed to focus more on my family who had made tremendous sacrifices over the previous four years. And so I think people should absolutely look to getting involved in the local government, either as part of a committee or as an elected representative. But my advice is, Try not to set the world on fire immediately and come in and have the humility to admit you don't have all the answers and that there is a very steep learning curve. And the people that came before you uh, aren't uh, all idiots. In fact, a lot of them are very, very smart and we could learn from them as a result. Some good advice. Um, Then looking forward, what's in the future for you? Any fun plans? 
So I'm going to be teaching again in the fall of 2024. This is going to be a 400 level course. It's going to be called State Government and Public Policy. So I'm very much looking forward to that. Otherwise, uh, I am spending most of my weekends over the course of this winter uh, shepherding my kids to various ice hockey rinks throughout Dane County. Um, and we'll continue in my full-time job as a software salesperson. Um, and meanwhile, you know, spend the next several months counting down the days until Packer season starts again. Um, and then we do usually like to end our podcast on a fun question. Love it. Um, so we heard that you are a certified Kansas City barbecue judge. Yes. Can you tell us more about that experience and how you got into judging barbecue? So this is probably the designation I'm most proud of in my entire resume. <laughs> um, and in fact, it, interestingly, I do actually include it as a little bit of a blurb on my resume, and I get more questions about that than I do about any sort of my education <laughs> or work experience. But I sat through a class, a series of classes, in which I was served in the barbecue, and they were told, it was, it was taught about what makes barbecue good versus bad. I did not know that, for example, you rate barbecue on a scale of one to nine, nine being the best, one being the worst. And a lot of that has to do with things like the color of the barbecue, whether or not it peels away from the bone, if it's ribs, etc. The, the whole Kansas City barbecue uh, judging, it's like a whole world unto itself. <laughs> and what I learned also about this was that the number of judges who want to sit and eat barbecue for free is quite long and such that you have to pay your dues and basically just wait in, until you amass seniority. So it's very much almost like a legislature uh, before you are allowed to be able to start judging actual competitions, which I think makes sense. But yet it's another lesson, I think, in perseverance in that, you know, I thought, hey, I've, I'm certified, I'm ready to go. And they're like, no, 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 you know, young Padawan, you got to wait your turn here uh, before you become available. So I highly recommend recommend it to anybody who's interested in you know barbecue but please note that you are going to be paying a lot of dues and waiting a long time before they actually allow you to judge a, a formal competition and if myself or anybody else wants to make barbecue their yes. barbecue a little bit better do you have tips so <laughs> one of the things that i learned is that it uh, speaking of, of states and their governmental policy states also have a variety of uh, barbecue kind of policies oh this oh. sounds just as controversial as state yeah, yeah. yeah i can feel it coming so I what i've what i <laughs> one of my dear friends who grew up in texas is a competitive barbecuer. Mm -hmm. And he lives in, in Green Bay now. And he was noticing that he was entering a lot of competitions with Texas-based barbecue, and he was not winning. Because Wisconsin-based barbecue judges prefer a more sugary-based barbecue than a Texas one. And therefore, as soon as he changed his recipe, all of a sudden he started winning a bunch of things. So it really varies depending on where you are in the country about your uh, particular barbecue style and what is going to allow you to win the competitions. Mm. Well, I see a future course, the politics of, of barbecue, barbecue yeah, yeah. in your future. Sounds yeah. delicious. Yes. <laughs> Maybe we'll have to have you back on in like the summer for a special out-of-office episode. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> we try some barbecue. Um, all right. For more information about 1050 Bascom, visit polisci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom.
1050 Bascom is edited by Adam Wigger and Sam Beisman, produced by Amy Gangle, and recorded remotely for now. <laughs>